0: The first thing that I want to make clear is that the majority of people that are asking for this change are the people who represent the effect of it not happening.
1: Xavier Ramey is the chief executive of Justice
0: Inform, And they are saying, hey, now I'm here and I have a voice. I'm working in this space. I was brought in in the early 2000s under some diversity initiative, and I'm sick of it now. I want to have agency and I want to work in this place and feel that it's a place that that respects me and engages me beyond just what I produce for them, but respects my humanity. Dear Black Voter, I'm Domotee
1: Pungo. In this episode, we talk to Xavier Ramey about the important role that advocacy groups play in holding elected officials accountable. Ramey also talks about his one-on-one meeting with Governor Bruce Rauner and what some of the key takeaways were. Justice Inform is a consulting agency it helps to increase the impact of corporate social responsibility. Now tell us more about Justice Informed. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Six months old at the time of this recording. Yes. And already breaking records. Yeah. Uh, but what does the, the organization do?
0: So Justice Informed is a company here in, based here in Chicago. Um, we serve to essentially create spaces, environments, and cultures within institutions across the country um, that are more um, uh, ambitious in their civic regard and effect for people of color, people of marginalized identity, um, to make their internal spaces places where people want to work, as well as to make them, uh, the communities, places where people want to live. So we work with everything from corporations around their diversity, equity, inclusion work, and that's their internal strategies, as well as their corporate social responsibility work, that's their external strategies. Uh, We also work with uh, nonprofits around their back office work, messaging for dignity, um, a lot around their diversity, equity, and inclusion work uh, primarily with boards where there's a lot of problems right now in nonprofits um, given that a lot of boards of directors are primarily white um, they're often very wealthy um, the clients are often people of color and the disconnect now that people have rights and agency and, and people of color are wanting to have voice um, they've always wanted to have voice but now they have the political and the social capital to do so um, it requires people who are adept at creating a smooth transition for that Um, while still holding the line for for justice in those conversations. And then finally, uh, we work with foundations. Um, We're trying to push more and more foundations to look at a trifold way of looking at their investments, their engagement, and how they fund. um, And then finally, how they communicate about what these issues are. Because often these foundations are the spaces that create the language around what's happening in the hood and why it's the hood. Um, And they either create a more ambitious language and a more true language, or they gloss over it.
1: So what are some of the challenges then that advocacy groups face, especially in this current political climate? Because we talk a lot about keeping elected officials accountable after the voting process is done. Organizations like yours helps to make that a reality. But oftentimes you guys face opposition from that same process. So what are some of the challenges that you face?
0: So first, I mean, I just want to be clear. Most people don't support advocacy groups. Let's just be very clear about that. If we're talking about political organizing, we're talking about direct action campaigns, we're talking about um, politics as we know it. There are many corporations that try to stay out of that. Now, we know that lobbying exists, though. And so in that, they're engaging in the political atmosphere. Right. Um, But when it comes to, for instance, nonprofits like Colin Kaepernick has the know your rights camp. Right? That's an advocacy organization that's working really hard to educate young people of color about what their rights are and what their, what their opportunities are as it relates to the effect of state violence in their life. There's not a, if Colin Kaepernick didn't have the money he has, I don't know that they'd be as well-funded as they are. <laughs> um, and there's not too many um, corporations that are looking to support those types of things. They'll support kids' after-school reading programs. They'll support tutoring initiatives for their employees to go into communities of color that might be affected by state violence um, to teach kids English and math and these types of things. Um, but supporting them as it relates to how we the people, the government, which is we the people, um, affect those communities is something that doesn't receive as much support. So I just want to make that clear. In terms of how they're being targeted right now, um, one, we have to look at the political landscape. So one of the most prominent uh, advocacy groups in the in the US, of course, is the ACLU. Um, the ACLU of Illinois here in Chicago is a really powerful one. Um, uh, we also have a lot of labor unions that work to ensure that people have rights and equity inside the workplace. Um, it also depends on the labor union, <laughs> how they're moving with that. Some of them actually, um, I think, um, hinder progress and justice, uh, but many of them are fighting to ensure that workplaces are equitable. The challenge gets when you get to the intersectional argument with labor, for instance, the Fraternal Order of Police being the union for the police, um, that, that space, they're protecting the rights for police to um, have their jobs, keep their jobs and stay in their jobs with as little friction as possible Um, which has a deleterious effect on the communities often in the agency that they're requesting or demanding in their rights for accountability um, against police who have committed misconduct or who have shot people or who have harmed people or just cussed some mother out as she was in her house. Um, These types. So it's a tricky thing. And so a lot of institutions try to stay away from it. But what, what, what I'm seeing is um, there are more people that are looking to engage, but it really comes down to how are we amplifying the fact that advocacy groups are a form of civic engagement that is absolutely necessary. It's not something that um, it'd be nice to do. The reality is that there are people with ideological differences in this country, and those people work in institutions. The institutions say that we don't talk politics and don't talk about it in this place, or you may have to leave. Um, But we know that the person, the the personal is political. We also know that people have to take their whole selves to work and they take everything that's at work back home with them. And so we're trying to change the conversation around how individual um, employees can support the political realities of people's lives that may be their neighbors when they go home, but are their peers when they're at work. Um, And so presenting them with opportunities to be educated about what is affecting their communities. Um, If you go to work with if you have a diverse uh, workforce here in Chicago, if you do have a diverse workforce here in Chicago and you work for a company, the likelihood is that you work in a company that's diverse and live in a neighborhood that's not right. (laughs) Um, And so the question of how you're voting has a lot to do with your colleagues life and what the effect then from the company of their ability to take those wages home and how they spend them. So you have an African-American employee that you pay $60,000. You have a white employee that you pay $60,000. However, the African-American employee may live in somewhere like South Shore. The white employee may live in Lakeview. You're going to have a very different experience in how those wages are sent back home and what they have to pay for and what it takes for this person to sustain that job. And so advocacy groups are fighting to make sure that the playing field is equitable, not just equal, that it's equitable. Um, and we're seeing from the federal government a lot of people that are saying we don't want to support these advocacy groups We saw, um, you know, when President Trump first came into office One of the first things that they did was they rewrote the website for the Justice Department Right when it comes to civil rights and the advocacy groups that are fighting for civil rights We saw the rewriting of a lot of the language and so that's the second fight is language They're targeting how people are able to talk when we saw African-Americans who were, who were talking about state violence being labeled as um, black identity extremists, right? This is a tool to make sure that there's now a, whist, a dog whistle, to identify people who are standing up for their rights for justice um, as something that is against the state. And when it's against the state, for those who don't um, interrogate the state, they would say, well, that's not my job. I don't make the laws, I just follow them. Well, now you just identified a new person to be criminal. And all they did was say that their lives matter. Mm. So you see what I'm saying? So we don't have the luxury of not paying attention to advocacy groups and supporting them.
1: But why would a corporation, what incentive do they have to bring these difficult conversations into the workplace?
0: The corporation itself doesn't have much incentive, but the employees do. So it's very rarely that I go to an institution and say the institution needs to change. Um, uh, More so, Justice Informed is solicited by people who work in institutions and are saying, hey, look, I've been here for a couple of years and this isn't right. Um, or I don't feel like I want to work here much longer because of how I'm being treated, or there are a lot of microaggressive situations that happen, and there's no space for me to talk about this, and the person in HR doesn't get it. Can we start with something low-level like a, a, a anti-racism training? <laughs> right. Um, of course, I'm going to go in there and ask for something more ambitious, but the first thing that I want to make clear is that the majority of people that are asking for this change are the people who represent the effect of it not happening. And they are saying, hey, now I'm here and I have a voice. I'm working in this space. I was brought in in the early 2000s under some diversity initiative, and I'm sick of it now. I want to have agency and I want to work in this place and feel that it's a place that, that respects me and engages me beyond just what I produce for them, but respects my humanity.
1: Absolutely. Um, you have a difficult conversation not only with leaders of corporations and employees of those corporations about how to better serve their diverse population there, uh. But you reach nonprofits and nonprofits, pro- and non-profits. <laughs> nonprofits. So nonprofits, you cannot
0: through. assume that just because people serve people of color, they know how to respect them. Right. Right. <laughs> you can't assume that. But so th- this is the interesting conversation too,
1: because even if you. As you think about the way we engage with corporations, with, with liberal organizations, there's this song and dance that kind of happens between, uh, are these advocacy groups really fighting for, do they really believe in the people they're fighting for, and are they equipped to understand what they're going through? Because oftentimes, as you as you said, even nonprofits, the people at the head of them don't look like the communities they serve. Um, do you help to translate kind of what that meaning is?
0: for? 90% of my job is translation. <laughs> Is that no, frustrating, though, that no. you have to translate? Okay. No, that's the work. That's okay. the work. That's okay. what gets me up in the morning. That's okay. what makes me excited, that people want to hear it in a different way. See, they could close their ears and close their eyes and, cl- and shut their mouths like they like people have been doing and saying that black lives don't matter because all lives matter. That's been the going mantra in America since day one. <laughs> right? But now people are willing to say, let me consider something else. And I think that that that, that gets me excited, that people are willing to have that conversation. But again, I want to be very clear. That conversation is often one that happens through duress. There there aren't as many as I would like. There aren't as many institutions that are saying, we want to proactively engage this. When you look at what happened with Starbucks, Starbucks is one of the most proactive around inclusion. They're one of the most proactive major institutions in this country. But it still happened to them. And what their CEO did was very, very unprecedented in saying, I'm going to close all of our retail shops for a half-day training session on anti-racism, and then he issued a public statement to the two black men who were arrested, most companies would not fathom doing that and legal would tell them don't do it. Because at the end of the day, like, like what Starbucks is seeing, there are a lot of customers who will say, you didn't have to do that, why'd you do that? that this wasn't even a big issue. And then there are other people who, are, who would say, congratulations, we're glad you did that, thank you so much for or speaking out." Or you didn't up. go far enough. And the real question for an institution is, but who are my shareholders? And usually the shareholders aren't the people who are getting arrested. They right. don't look like them, and that's that's part of the we're talking about song and dance. Like that's the nimble tightrope that I'm finding executives in. Even if they have the heart and the desire and the ambition to do it, the legal liabilities of standing up and speaking still preclude them from engaging in a way that's as ambitious as they would like it to be. And so in that, I think that a lot of folks are painted with the bad, a broad brush. Um, and and and. And they're not understanding that there are people who want to move this stuff forward. But the way the laws are set up and then the way that we don't support people who do go out front when there are corporations and there are people and institutions that run out front and say, no, I'm going to stand up for this. There's not an army of people who are willing to support them as much as there's an army of people who are willing to indict them. And that's on us.
1: You recently had a meeting uh, with Governor Bruce Rounder, representing Justice Informed. How did that conversation come about and what was the goal?
0: Yeah, that, <laughs> that conversation came about because um, I wrote a public letter um, about the definition of service and what it needs to be in the 21st century um, and how we're doing a disservice to the definition of service by making it about the hands when we need to understand that pub- what Dr. King fought for. I was, it, was, it was echoing some of the things that he was saying. Um, what he fought for was a more uh, rigorous and a more broad definition of service that included not just um, you helping some person who's hungry, it's you advocating to stomp out hunger. And that is an active position. It's not only an external thing, it's an internal thing. So how you go about your own conspicuous consumption or, or need-based consumption in your own life has a lot to do with whether someone else can, can, can eat. And so he was challenging us to to realize that that forbearance is a form of service, that 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 sacrifice is a form of service. And and we got to get off of this tutoring and volunteering train because that's not how we're going to get free. There's no way that we can volunteer our way out of mass incarceration. There's no way that we can tutor our way out of bad public schooling. There's no way we can do it. So everyday people and the institutions that they represent and work for have to understand the part that they can play. And so I wrote a letter about this. Um and it ended up on the governor's desk. And he asked one of his advisors to reach out to me and and see if we could get a one on one to discuss this. Um When was this? This was late Jan, February, something like that. Um, so maybe two months ago. And um and I, you know, so I, 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 you know, I'm trying to figure out whether I take the meeting or not. To, you know, Governor Ronner's is not someone I voted for. <laughs> um, and but, you know, you have to ensure that you don't leave, as my brother Tim Jones says, you leave no potential on the table. <laughs> um, you, you have to see the opportunity before you and stand stand in that and, and take that uh, heat, those bullets or whatever. Um, if you were positioned to do that. And so I felt in that situation, okay, I'm going to take this meeting. I'm going to talk to the guy and see what he has to say. And uh, what came out of that meeting? Um, we had a, some interesting conversations around unions. Uh, I know that's one of the things he really cares about. We talked a bit about charters. Um, and we talked a bit about what business means in the state of Illinois. For myself as a business owner, um, you know, I have a lot of expectations for what the state should be providing. We talked about taxation um, <laughs> and how, how high the taxes are for businesses here. Um, And the effect of those of that taxation on for me, I don't mind having high taxation so long as I'm sure assured um, that that taxation is going to help people, not just hurt people, Um, not not just and doesn't hurt people. Um, And so we went, you know, the real points that I took away were that, you know, he he really wants us to move towards, you know, removing mandates for unionization for companies. Um, He, you know. He, he says this a lot publicly, right? You know, Wisconsin and Indiana and, you know, these other states have removed these mandates and, and their union uh, membership is up and these types of things. Uh, my response is always the same thing around that. Um, if businesses act in such a way that remove the need for unions, then let the unions go. But until businesses are being proactive about being just because we have to remember that the reason why unions existed and why they were even created was because people were being grinded into the production cycles of the industrialized company, country, right? And they needed those protections. And still to this day, many union jobs in Chicago are the only ones for people of color that can to get a living wage. We got to talk about the racism in there uh, and all that. Um, but But until businesses like myself and other business owners understand that the way that they structure their wages— has a lot to do with the need for unions. Um, I'm not comfortable with removing them.
1: And his response to that.
0: We don't agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't agree. I mean I mean I I, I remember telling him, you know, you know I I hope that he knows, and the way that I operate my business, from the fees to the way we talk about HR, the way we talk about, um, you know, any part-time staff or folks who are coming in as contractors or otherwise, um, is very clear to me that it's very important to model what a 21st century business looks like. Uh, so,
1: yeah. uh, sorry to cut you off, but uh, moving tight on time, but I want to get this out. Yeah. What advice do you have then to organizations who have meetings with the with elected officials? Because this is why we need advocacy groups, right? Because mm-hmm. You guys get faceTime from these people and talk about the issues that matter. Yep. How do you come away with the meeting with someone who diametrically opposed to what it is that you believe in and still come away with the takeaway that makes you feel good about being a part of that process? I
0: justify you know, <laughs> the ability to know the, the the ability to know something to me is worth anything. knowledge is 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 power. Um, I didn't know every place where the governor was on these issues. I heard this stuff on screen, you know what I mean right. Uh, But in a in a in a in a a closed conversation, it's very different. Um, And so I think it's always beneficial um, if you need to know. If you don't need to know, then it's not beneficial. At the same time, um, now he knows that business owners like me are in the state of Illinois. And I wanted him to know that. Um, that there are businesses like me, and as I told him, there are, there are people of my age group, the older millennials, the younger millennials, and now we got Gen Xers that are coming, that we don't want from business what you all have built businesses to be. And we're going to model and replicate and scale what businesses should be because we are the ones who inherit this century. And that's what I was there to do, and that's what I did.
1: A large part of why he says people are leaving Illinois is because of the business opportunities. Yeah, that's or- not true. Or his ideas, like they <laughs> and I mean, people are calling it an exodus. Mainly, that's part of it. That's part of it. of the black population. You call it a depopulation yeah. of the city of Chicago. First, why is it happening, and why do you call it a depopulation and not an exodus?
0: Yeah. So, so this is where we have to understand that um, the everyday person has to have a structural, uh, an understanding and a struct of structural analysis of racism and urban planning. They have to. They every day, And this is what we're trying to push companies, to just let us educate your people. <laughs> Not. We don't want to tell them how to vote. We don't want to tell them what to do. But we do want to educate them about what this is. So when you have a situation where for... You know, 20, 30 years, you send police into black neighborhoods under the guise of the drug war. Then you destroy the projects because you say that they're gang riddled. But you left people out of the workforce for dozens of years or excluded them out of the workforce and then criminalized them, which then put a stigma on them, not allowing them to go into the workforce. As you also didn't didn't better fund and equip the EEOC, which was the vanguard, the police for the businesses that aren't employing people of diverse backgrounds. You're doing this all along the way. And that's not when I say you're doing this. It's, it's we are doing this. The government is us. Um, those of us who can vote, who have agency, it's us. Um, We're allowing these things to happen. Um, and as those things are happening, there's two positions that you put people in. If they have the means, they're going to flee. If they don't have the means, they're going to fight. That's where they're at. So, and, and, and when you have situations, like I'm from North Lawndale, where, where young people have to pick up guns um, to, feed it, to feed, to, to eat. Some of them pick up guns because they're just mad or or whatever it may be. But but when when you have those situations or the other the other best job is to pick up a gun and arrest somebody because it pays seventy two thousand dollars after 18 months. You could be a Chicago police officer. Either way, you're living in the hood. You got to pick up a gun. (laughs) You can go be an accountant, but the state isn't making it probable that you be an accountant because of the education system. Right. So you see what I'm saying? So to say it's an exodus that people are leaving, you lit their house on fire and said they left. It makes no sense. They're not leaving. They're being forced out. And we knew that the land, when I lived in Cabrini-Green, the land that Cabrini-Green sat on, when the plan for transformation happened with the Chicago Housing Authority, those people did not come back. When they tore down thousands of units of public housing where black families lived, and it is now top 15 neighborhoods to live in, in Chicago, they got a tower over by where I used to live in the Orange Doors called the Xavier. And it's $3,200 a month for two-bedroom apartments that they never would have let us have when we were just poor folks living over there. You see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. This is not this is not exodus. This is an extrication. Mm-hmm. That's like it's like in the hood. It's not a lack of investment. It's divestment. Things are being taken. Right. And because the everyday person doesn't have a structural analysis of these things, they think it's just people choosing to leave. Right. Or people choosing to pick up a gun randomly, not knowing that because we didn't enforce labor market rules and and, and the federal rules that were on the books. We were willing to send police into the hood. We weren't willing to send them into the companies. You see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. This is the type of yeah. thing. And so it's 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 saying if we're going to follow the law, then, then, then execute the law fully. Thank you for listening to a segment from our biweekly series, Dear Black Voter. We invite you to check out our show notes and voter resources at coldpodcast.com. And don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the League and to find out how you can get involved and support our work, please visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org.